You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. I think when people say that the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow, that is true, but you can still create a power system that meets that demand to the required reliability standard with 100% renewable energy. Resilience can't be provided to the extent we need by the grid alone. For December 8th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. It is common wisdom that in order to achieve our decarbonization objectives in the U.S., we'll have to build a lot more long-distance transmission capacity. Numerous studies have come to this conclusion because the middle of the U.S. is where the largest and cheapest wind resources are, and the American Southwest is where the largest and cheapest solar resources are. But that's not where most of the population is. The population is mostly distributed into coastal cities. So obviously, the cheapest way to provide large amounts of renewable power is to build what is sometimes called a macro-grid, featuring large transmission lines designed to deliver that cheap wind from the Midwest and that cheap solar from the Southwest out to the coastal cities. But getting transmission actually built in the U.S. has been all but impossible for many years now, thanks to a combination of local opposition from host communities, jurisdictional issues, and the resistance of major utilities, among other things. Now it seems there is a fresh opportunity to start getting some new transmission capacity built thanks to funding and other provisions of the recently passed Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, previously known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. There is also fresh interest in unlocking the truly massive renewable resources of the U.S. that are currently unable to get to market due to a lack of transmission capacity, resources that are critical to helping the U.S. decarbonize its economy. So this seemed like a good time to revisit the topic of transmission and see how the new act can help get projects moving in the U.S., discuss some new approaches to overcoming the resistance that has plagued transmission projects in the past, and see what they can do for us now. It also seemed like a good time to question whether a macro grid based on big transmission lines is still really the cheapest and best solution, or if more distributed solutions might be worth reevaluating in light of updated cost data and some contemporary grid modeling. So I was very pleased that our guest in this episode was willing to share her expertise on transmission with us. Liza Reed is the Research Manager for Low Carbon Technology Policy at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C. She's an expert in high-voltage direct current, electricity transmission, and technology innovation, and she is as up-to-date as anyone I have found on the latest thinking about transmission. She's also a fan of the show, and so she can help us tie together some of the threads we have discussed in previous episodes, which I always appreciate. Then in the news segment, we'll take a closer look at exactly what that widely reported $130 trillion pledge made at the COP26 climate conference was all about. We'll recognize three astonishingly ambitious proposals to build long-distance subsea transmission lines, and we'll salute the commissioning of Australia's newest and biggest battery storage array. And now, our conversation with Liza Reed, recorded November 23, 2021. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Liza, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Let's start with a generally accepted premise that, as you put it in one of your recent articles, quote, transmission is critical to achieving net zero goals in a cost-effective manner. 
Now, you reference a 2016 NOAA study that showed how a high-voltage direct current, or HVDC, transmission network would produce the lowest-cost solution for reducing emissions by 80% by 2030. And you reference the recent Princeton Net Zero America study, which found that U.S. transmission capacity may need to triple, expanding traditional alternating current lines and adding interstate HVDC. So just to get us started here, what do you think these visions of the future look like? So as you said, across the board, these studies find that decarbonization pathways require two to three times more transmission capacity than the U.S. has today. That's just a lot of physical infrastructure. But it's also a little complicated to nail down because the common metric that these studies use is gigawatt miles, and that's a made-up modeling metric. That's what they have found needs to double or triple this sort of capacity over distance. But that doesn't have an obvious path forward for the rest of us <laughs> about what does that mean? What does that look like? And there's a lot of ways to turn gigawatt miles into physical infrastructure. And how that actually plays out in the transmission planning process is sort of still to be determined. Okay, so the gigawatt miles number is a grossed up number that's not the result of adding up specific routes and knowing exactly how many miles and how much capacity is on each route. That is how they do it, but they are multiplying capacity by miles and adding it across what they have determined, but everybody's got a different map okay, and a different implementation of this. And so it is actually, I think, very hard to imagine what this is going to look like. The, mm. the 2016 NOAA study is explicitly a macro grid, which for the uninitiated, a macro grid is an interconnected nation-spanning grid of high-voltage, high-capacity lines. And traditionally, people mean high-voltage direct current lines there, the HVDC. It doesn't necessarily have to be HVDC, although I am a proponent of HVDC myself. But Princeton doesn't come up with a macro grid. If you look at the Princeton map, they're using a lot of existing right-of-way because of how they're modeling is set up and what their modeling is prioritizing. So you get a very different look for what this means for the actual transmission infrastructure for incorporating all of this renewable energy. Gotcha. Okay. So exactly what does this macro grid look like? What's the general concept of how this thing is laid out and what it's doing? Yeah. So one of the goals for something like a macro grid is getting these transmission projects to connect physical resources between regions. So it is getting the wind out of the windy regions and getting it to the load centers. But it's also more than that. It's about shifting things back and forth across time and space as well. So there's certainly this aspect of the highest efficiency resources are not necessarily where the load centers are and connecting those resource rich areas. The language of this is sort of depressingly apersonal. <laughs> resource rich areas to load centers, to cities, to people, <laughs> to the places that need it. Right. But then it's also again about sharing it back and forth too. So Texas in winter storm Uri, Texas experienced a wicked cold snap. And Texas has both wind capacity and natural gas capacity and major load centers and still needed help from other areas. And the states to the north of Texas were able to get some help from the Midwest. So there's a lot of different roles that transmission plays here in terms of what it's doing in electricity. But when we think about, again, what it looks like, maybe I'm being too literal here, but it's big towers. It's big towers or potentially big pipes underground. 
that are transferring a ton of electricity capacity around the country for us instead of oil pipelines and natural gas pipelines and capacity on rail cars. We're doing it via electrical wires. Gotcha. Okay. So the, the concept here, I think, is rooted in the idea that you've got these very cheap wind resources across the central Midwest of the U.S., the Great Plains, and you've got these great solar resources in the Southwest. And so because those resources are so big and so cheap, we're going to need this large macro grid of high capacity transmission to export that power to the load centers, which are more oftentimes along the coasts. Mm -hmm. And that's an idea that I think we're going to revisit, and I'm going to probe and question that idea a little bit later on. But I just wanted to establish for the initial framing that that's kind of the concept of this macro grid. Yeah, exactly. This transmission generally, but in particular, the macro grid sort of to the extreme, provides this geographic diversity, I think is a helpful way of describing what we're talking about. So it's allowing regions to share resources, and it is resource neutral. So nuclear and hydropower and geothermal, all of these are able to use this transmission system to share their resources. And I know we're gonna be talking about cost a little bit later, but at least what the studies have been showing is that transmission does it in the most cost-effective manner, which from a very high level economic perspective makes sense. That is the argument for consolidation in every case, is that when you can consolidate, you can get lower costs. That's sort of the, the whole reason that corporations exist, arguably, from an economic perspective. But there's a lot of difficulties in building this sort of transmission. Right. So what would transmission have done for us, for example, in the case of the the cold snap, the eastern U.S., or what happened in Texas, or the rolling blackouts in the Great Plains? So one of the things that it would have provided is more power. And more power and lower cost power. So there were two things that happened in Texas and in most of these cases, but Texas obviously had some of the more extreme and I think headline grabbing examples of the cost aspect. But the two things that happened were not enough power to meet the demand and then high energy prices. And we saw that sort of to the extreme in Texas, where if you were getting power, you were paying an awful lot for it. So if you can get more power into an area through more transmission, then you can bring those prices down and you can roll those blackouts better. So I don't want to sit here and pretend that transmission means we're never going to have blackouts again because you can only optimize a system so far. The sort of number one principle that I think about in engineering is that you have to have an error rate greater than zero if your error rate has to be zero, then you have an impossible project to solve. You have to have the ability to have blackouts. It's going to happen. We can't engineer away everything. But if we can get right. more power and more options, I think is the other thing that's important to think about with transmission is the options. And transmission is not unique in that. Transmission isn't the only option. We need all of the options. We need the storage. We need the transmission. We need the distributed resources as well. But I do think transmission is an important cornerstone in those options for addressing these challenges. Okay. So one of the key aspects of getting more transmission built is this kind of accumulating queue of projects that are waiting for interconnection. 
And I think we want to explore that idea a little more here. But first, let's talk about what an interconnection is. How would you describe that? So an interconnection is a process by which you get interconnected. What I mean by that is connected into the grid. To maintain a reliable system, we don't just let anything hook up to the grid. It's usually transmission projects is what gets impacted. As you said, we've got renewable projects in this queue, but merchant transmission projects, so that is privately funded projects like the Clean Line project that your listeners heard about from Russell Gold, those are developed outside of the grid planning process. Basically anything who's an outsider to the transmission planning process has to ask to be hooked up, has to request this connection. And the RTO or the reliability authority determines what impact the project will have on the system. It's a ton of power flow studies. And then those impacts sort of determine what the system now needs. If we're going to have congestion here or too much risk of sort of operational issues, then we need to upgrade or change the grid before we can bring this other power in, before we can connect this transmission or renewable energy project. Usually this is increasing transmission capacity is what they find. Usually they find their system needs more transmission capacity. And there's a deep irony if you're talking about merchant transmission lines that we need more transmission capacity in order to accommodate more transmission capacity. Mm. It sort of turtles all the way down here. (laughs) But the projects can't connect until these changes are made. And those costs sometimes are incurred by the project themselves. That's fairly complicated. There's a great study I think you've linked to in the show notes that describes it much better than I can about how that sort of process and cost incurring happens, whether the projects have to pay for them or not, and what that can mean about their financing. So there's a time issue and a financial issue for getting projects onto the grid. Okay. So right now, it looks like there's a pretty massive queue of renewable energy projects that are waiting in interconnection queues in the U.S. due to insufficient transmission. And according to a January 2021 report from Americans for a Clean Energy Grid, a whopping 734 gigawatts of proposed generation, of which 90% is new wind, solar, and storage, was waiting for interconnection to transmission grids. And in another report they published in April, they identified 22 shovel-ready high-voltage transmission projects that would enable 60 gigawatts of new renewable energy capacity to be developed in the U.S. I mean, that's a lot of capacity being held up for a lack of transmission. It absolutely is. And those were the studies I was referencing earlier. And they're really eye-opening about how these issues are intersecting, how renewable energy and transmission help each other out. And I would argue that transmission is the bottleneck. Transmission is the enabling infrastructure. And in fact, I think that's what you quoted me saying earlier. We have to get the transmission first because we can't get anything else until we have a way to move it forward. So these 22 projects, the Americans for Clean Energy Grid identified, they'd be bringing wind and solar resources, everything that we just talked about, to these areas with high demand. But there's also potential for economic development. There's also that grid resiliency. I mean, it's everything that we've been discussing. These are exactly those examples that I think these reports capture really well. But they're stalled because we don't have the policies in place that is making it possible to get transmission built at scale and speed. So we don't have the policies in place that are going to get transmission built. There's a lot of different studies that are talking about the problems that we have from a technical perspective, from a policy perspective, but it covers sort of broadly. We need policies to fix how transmission gets paid for. 
So there's a potentially a transmission investment tax credit. In fact, that's something that is being discussed in the Build Back Better plan for incorporation. Renewable energy has obviously enjoyed a renewable energy investment tax credit, but transmission has not. And so this enabling infrastructure hasn't gotten that support to sort of expand. That's why we have tax credits to make these projects a little more sort of financially viable for businesses and investors, quite frankly, to invest in so that we can get more of them moving. We just need more dollars across the board to get these projects built. There's also a larger role for the federal government to play, potentially in the different ways that they finance the lines, but then also in the siting and sort of permitting process for these lines. And I think you talked about siting in a previous episode with Alexandra Klass, who's just sort of an absolutely incredible scholar on this out of the University of Minnesota. And then finally, we haven't even talked about the role of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And a lot of the pieces that we've been discussing back and forth already fall under FERC's authority in some way or another. FERC has authority over transmission planning, and through that has some authority over cost allocation. And this is largely derived from their role in managing and defining energy markets, and then also ensuring resilience and reliability of the system. They sort of have a fascinatingly narrow role in transmission compared to their role in natural gas, but through resilience and reliability and through some sort of actions they've taken over the past 20 years, that has incorporated more transmission planning elements, and they're undergoing a process right now. It's currently in the ANOPER stage, that's the Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, to come out with a new rule that hopefully will address some of the issues with transmission planning, some of the issues with cost allocation and the interconnection queue. So those are just some of the policies that need to change, which is basically all of them. What the reports say is that the system is very broken and we just have to get it fixed because nothing is getting built. Right. And that's the main reason that I wanted to talk to you today is to talk about what do we need to do to fix what's broken, to clear the obstacles out of the way of getting this stuff built and actually start getting some transmission built because we really haven't done very much for quite a long time now. So let's talk about some of the barriers to siting that have prevented the expansion of transmission over the past several decades in the U.S., We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, interactive transcripts of our interviews, our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. 
We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. One of the widely circulated headlines from the COP26 climate conference was that Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of Canada and then of the Bank of England, had rounded up private capital commitments to spend a whopping $130 trillion on projects to tackle climate change. It's hard to know if people just didn't read the news carefully or if what they read was badly written, but the reality was considerably less exciting. What Carney did is assemble a group of private investors known collectively as the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANS, and get them to commit to, quote, accelerating and mainstreaming the decarbonization of the world economy and reaching net zero emissions by 2050. And if that sounds like a bit of a nothing burger, well, it sort of is. There are as yet no details on how the participating investors, including more than 450 banks, insurers, pension funds, asset managers, export credit agencies, stock exchanges, credit rating agencies, index providers, and audit firms across 45 countries, will meet that pledge. Nor did they announce any specific investments in projects related to energy transition or climate. And that $130 trillion number? That's just the total assets that the GFANS members have under management collectively. Indeed, as Becky Jarvis, a strategist for the Bank on Our Future campaign network, which tracks the financial services industry, said, the pledge is a mile wide and an inch deep, and the group's asset manager members have so far only aligned about 35% of their total assets to net zero targets. Nor does a pledge rule out further investments in fossil fuel expansion. However, the GFANS group said it could deliver as much as $100 trillion of financing to help economies transition to net zero over the next three decades. And Mark Campanale, founder of the financial think tank Carbon Tracker Initiative and a member of the GFANS advisory committee, who you'll remember from episode 133 on stranded assets, said the group's ambition was to align their assets with climate action in the future. Michael Bloomberg, the billionaire former mayor of New York, will join Carney as co-chair of GFANS, which will report on its work periodically to the G20 Financial Stability Board. Mary Shapiro, former chair of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, will be the vice chair. Concurrent with the GFANS announcement, UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak affirmed plans announced in October to require British companies to publish net zero emissions roadmaps starting in 2023, setting out how they plan to decarbonize by 2050 and a task force made up of industry representatives, academics, regulators, and civil society groups will be established to develop standards. Bloomberg and Shapiro are already involved in the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. In conjunction, the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation, a global accounting body, launched the International Sustainability Standards Board to establish globally consistent climate disclosure standards for financial markets. So there is substance to the GFANS. Carney likened it to the necessary plumbing on climate action. And getting institutions aligned around reporting standards and disclosures is a necessary, if not immediately effective, step. For more on how financial institutions are getting reoriented around climate action, listen to episode 135. Item 2. In April, British company Exelinx announced an incredibly ambitious project to build an HVDC transmission line between the UK and Morocco. 
The $24 billion project would include a 7 gigawatt solar farm and a 3.5 gigawatt wind farm, as well as a 5 gigawatt. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.